Welcome everyone to the CapsCorner.com podcast, CapsCorner.com, your source for Virginia sports. I am Brad Franklin, publisher of CapsCorner.com, coming to you live from the Blake Franklin Estates in the west end of Richmond, where it is actually Monday evening, March the 14th, uh, about 24 hours since that debacle of a, uh, <laughs> a selection show just ended. Uh, we finally know where everybody's going and who's in and who's out and all kinds of fun stuff. So it wouldn't be uh, March Madness if we didn't have our, our good friend Patrick Stevens on to uh, to talk about the bracket in a uh, special edition of the CavsCorner.com podcast. We'll be back uh, with another new episode with the crew to kind of handicap Virginia's draw in Raleigh and kind of get started talking about that. Maybe maybe touch on the, the, the loss to Carolina in the ACC championship game as well. But before we do that, like I said, we were going to – we got to bring on Patrick because he is the man when it comes to all things bracket, all things bracketology. Uh, Patrick is a contributor to the Washington Post. He's a contributor to the News and Observer out down in Raleigh. You can find him on Twitter at Discourse instead of an I. It's a one. Patrick, welcome back to the show, my friend. Brad, thank you for having me for this annual tradition. It, it, this is it, sort of like the day after Christmas tradition <laughs> for me. It is very much. It was funny. Let me let me tell the people. So Patrick and I were at the ACC tournament the other night, and he he looks at me with a very panicked look on his face, and said, "Hey, look, you, you wanna you wanna go ahead and get a time set up because I'm getting lots of requests. This is number eleven. You said right? I am number eleven on your number agenda eleven today? on the day. Yes. So how does one get ready for a day? I mean, I've done I've done maybe three or four when it's busy. Um, I think five was the most ever. I've never done anything close. How does one get ready to do 11 spots in a day? Well, you just answer your phone and go. Uh, you know, this, <laughs> we, there's been nine on the phone, two on Skype. Uh, and so there, there's that too. So you're kind of like juggling that a little bit. Right. And some of it, you know, is a, is a matter of, of just being prepared. The funny thing is, is, is that uh, uh, somebody from the post it had reached out to me and it said, you know, we'd really like to get you a bunch of radio and, and television spots. And I'm like, okay, sure, you know. And I said, I'll tell you what, I will, uh, I'll make sure, um, I'll make sure I let you know what all I've got going on. And uh, and the funny thing is, is that I was kind of thinking that there was going to be this deluge. And so I, I went ahead and, and kind of reached out to people that I'd helped out before and, and it had me on their shows and all. And I said, well, if you need me, just let me know. And, and sure enough, I kind of filled up the schedule on my own. You know, I, I thought it was, it was probably a, a good deal for them for me just to kind of scramble around. And sometimes there were, there were certainly a couple of times where uh, you get a text and it's like, can you come on in 15 minutes? And I'm like, yeah, I can, I can do that. That's right. not ideal, right. but I can do that. So I much prefer the let's, let's plan this by 24 hours approach. <laughs> Uh, so, but yeah, I, I kind of just figured today was mostly going to be shot, but all things considered being home for a day and, right. and just kind of knocking a bunch of these things out, uh, is not the worst thing in the world to be doing, uh, in the middle of March. It's nice to have a kind of day at home and you can kind of jump around and do a few other things in between these interviews. And I actually knocked a little bit of workout too today. Wow, so that was that. a, that was a pleasant surprise. So. Uh, very uh, very busy time, and, and looking forward certainly to get a, getting on the road at least for the first weekend of the tournament. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Uh, where where are you going this weekend? I am going to Raleigh. Hey, uh, all right, yeah. I am right. going to Raleigh, uh, helping out the the, the NNO down there, cool. and uh, 
you know, it, it might not have worked out as the most ideal sub-regional. You get two one-seeds, so you're guaranteed two one-sixteen games. Right, right. And then you're guaranteed a one versus an eight-nine. And, and we're talking about two number one-seeds that'll be working with a pretty significant home court advantage, and both have been That's playing true. pretty well. That's true. So uh, deep down, I'm kind of hoping those 8-9 games are pretty good because otherwise it, it could be kind of a lean weekend. True. Before we get too deep into it, I want to remind the people, how long have you have you been doing bracketology and, and kind of digging into this um, this annually in March? How, how, when, when did you really get, get like knee-deep in this? Uh, probably more than a decade or so ago. Um, you know, it's funny. You kind of almost rely on, on that bracket matrix site to track everything for you now. Mm -hmm. And I think they have me on there going back to about 2007. So, uh, I, I want to say that there's probably some sort of, uh, print, uh, evidence that I was doing this at least back to 06. I can remember being just thoroughly baffled, uh, at the Air Force selection in 2006, which remains, uh, one of the more confusing inclusions uh, in in recent memory, anyway. I was probably doing it, dabbling in it a little bit before then, and just kind of had it grow grow a little bit, and uh, found out uh, that you know, especially with the with the way that the career arc has gone, uh, that it's a way to uh, to help pay the bills, right. and I'm certainly not complaining about that. I hear you. So you you mentioned Air Force. Was where does Tulsa getting into the tournament? rank in terms of the oh my god kind of moments uh, for it, you as a quite as a, honestly as a it's this. not the most surprising team in this year's field huh. i was more surprised by michigan i, I thought that tulsa's profile was kind of bland you, you you would look at it and, and you could overlook it a little bit but there wasn't a whole lot that you were you would size up and say they don't belong in the tournament i mean they were they had four top 50 victories Top 50 victories. They're four and five against the top 50. Eight and eight against the top 100. They, I believe, eight and eight away from home. They wanted SMU, so they checked the box of having a high-end road victory. Right. Uh, they lost to Oral Roberts. They lost twice to Memphis, the second Memphis loss. I, I was kind of convinced there might be a little bit of a perception thing going against them for how they ended uh, their season, losing by 20 in the conference tournament to a really underwhelming Memphis team. So uh, a little surprised that they got in, but I, I would tell you I was more surprised that Michigan got in with with the with the profile that it had. 11 losses by double figures, mm -hmm. uh, four and 12 against the top 100. Uh, but the Michigan inclusion uh, is essentially this year's UCLA, hmm. uh, right. a team that that frankly didn't do a whole lot. They did a little bit more because they won a couple road games that were of some significance, neutral site games against Indiana and uh, and Texas, I believe it was. Uh, but I, I think that's the new normal, is that if you're a power conference team and you can pick up four decent victories somehow, some way along the way, uh, then that's probably going to be enough to get you in, even if it takes you 16 or 17 tries to get those victories. Right. Now UVA ends up with a with a one seed. Did that surprise you? If if so, why? And if not, why? A little bit. I I, I was thinking that Michigan State would get a bit of credit uh, for the Denzel Valentine injury. That they weren't quite the same. They were a little discombobulated when he got back, and they were cr trying to figure everything out because Michigan State's had guys coming in and out of the lineup it seems all year uh, but but I think it's fair to say that they were probably playing about as well as anybody not named Kansas uh, when the season came to an end so I kind of thought uh, that they would get a little credit for that and end up on the one line when you compare the profiles side by side uh, I have no problems with 
with people saying Virginia's the one seed. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I would take Virginia over Oregon as the last of, uh, for the for the third spot. Mm-hmm. But that having been said, we're kind of splitting hairs there a bit. You look at Virginia, they beat pretty much everybody good in the ACC except for Duke. And since I know I'm talking to a Virginia audience, I know you really beat Duke except he <laughs> traveled and all that stuff. Okay, so uh, I'll go ahead and get that one out of the way there. But in any case, in terms of what the actual team sheet says, they beat everybody good in the ACC at least once except for Duke. They beat Villanova. They, they, they beat West Virginia up at the Garden. So there's a, a lot to like about uh, Virginia's profile. And, you know, it's amazing. Who would have thought, you know, five, six, seven years ago that we would be discussing that Virginia was very much in contention for a one seed three years in a row? I mean, I think that speaks to to just the tremendous job that's been done in Charlottesville here uh, and, and really the continued growth of that program. Yeah, Coach mentioned that last night on his teleconference that um, I guess Toby was – my Toby was being interviewed by somebody last night. I mean, my guess is Jeff White and – uh, he said, you know, yeah, he was asked, I guess, about what's changed. And he said, you know, a few years ago we were worried about getting in, and now we're worried about whether we're going to be a one or a two. Um, you're right. I think that does say a lot about kind of where, where the program um, has kind of come from. I, I think you have an interesting vantage point. You saw, I think you saw UVA twice during the, during the regular season, right? You saw him at GW, and then you saw him one other time, I feel like. I, feel like I, 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 I don't think I got – I did not get down to Charlottesville this season. Okay, so you saw, him, you saw him GW and then in the ACC tournament. And then in the ACC tournament for three games, yes. Right. So before we get back into the, into the actual bracket, I just want to touch on this because it was one thing that was on my mind and I didn't want to lose it. Because as somebody who watches them, you know it's hard to see. You know it's hard to see a kid uh, who 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 you see incrementally grow. It's hard to see how tall they get. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But you you have an interesting vantage point in terms of you saw them probably on one of their worst nights, um, and then you got to got to see them again at the end. Compare those two teams for me. What change do you think for them from that night in in, in Foggy Bottom to how you saw them at the end of the season playing pretty well? What what changed in your opinion about about the Cavaliers? Well, I, I would say that I would say that with uh, with Virginia, the difference that night back in November is their interior defense was quite poor. I mean, Kevin Larson for George Washington is one of the best passers as a big man you're going to find anywhere in college basketball, and Virginia, which had completely stymied him a year earlier down in Charlottesville, had no idea what to do with him, and he completely controlled that game. I'm not sure. Virginia is going to allow something like that to happen again at this point. I, I don't think this is as I don't think this is quite as good a defensive team as Virginia's had. But at this point, we're talking about whether a team is at an extraordinarily elite level or at just an exceptional level. I mean, they're still really good defensively. I don't think they're quite as good as they were last year. They, you know, there isn't a Justin Anderson out there that can basically be a jack of all trades. But offensively, that's the thing that I think has come a, a, quite a ways for this Virginia team. And, and as you look at them, and especially when you compare them to years past, uh, there's just more developed options. And I know everybody likes to say that defense wins championships, but you still have to score to win. I mean, there was that Connecticut-Butler championship game a few years back where you didn't have to score to win. But for the most part, you do have to be able to produce points. It's something that Virginia wasn't able to do in the last eight minutes against Carolina the other night. Uh, but I do think they have more options and more abilities to get there. You know, I think Gill, Brogdon, Perantas, all those guys 
are, are better versions of themselves as well they should be at this stage in their career as opposed to earlier this season and definitely in previous seasons. Uh, but you see, even in that even in that title game, uh, you know, you get Evan Nolte with the timely threes. Uh, you, you had some moments during the tournament where Toby uh, was was contributing. Uh, you got Devin Hall scoring, and I think Isaiah Wilkins is going to be a really fine player in the second half of his career. I'm really looking forward to seeing him get further along, and, and he's a guy that's definitely come a ways uh, since early in this season. So there's a there's a bunch of pieces there that are really interesting, uh, you know, and and I, and I believe. That uh, that they're probably going to continue to get better. Some of the younger guys, anyway. But I, at the moment, I just feel like they're a more developed offensive team that's capable uh, of of doing some damage at that end of the floor on a more consistent basis. Which is not to say that they haven't been good offensively in the past. It's just I, I feel like it, it, not even necessarily that it comes easier, uh, but that there's just a few more answers to work with. Right, then that makes sense. I mean, it's funny to, to say this coming off the the shooting performance they had Saturday night, but you know, people forget that Brogdon and, and Perondis were both top five, I think, most of the year uh, in the conference in, in three point shooting percentage. And so it's it's kind of you're right. I think that they do have more options. Certainly, the fact that Brogdon can his his game has evolved um, so much over the years. It, he's no he, he, that taking one thing away from him doesn't seem to slow him down much. I mean, Mm-mm. if you think about it, the other night, really, how did Carolina slow him down? I, I think, realistically, they let him shoot and just hoped that they would miss. Um, and, and, and in that particular case, it did, but you're right. I mean, can, you, know, you know... Consistently, I, is that a way to really defend somebody? I'm not sure. I, I read this column Ed Harden wrote. I don't know if you saw it. It was like, he basically was making the argument that Roy had had almost like rockied them in terms of like, you know, because he switched from... You know, he was he was southpaw, and everybody knew his southpaw. Well, then he comes out and he's fighting right-handed, and and then all of a sudden he switches. Like Roy basically came out there with a small lineup, and ben, and Tony was completely confused. And I'm thinking, well, no, they just they they shot a season low 36 and a half percent. Most of those were wide open looks. I mean, it wasn't like guys were, you know, closed out hard on, and and you know, guys were you know hands and faces. I mean, it was a lot of it was just guys missing shots. I, I don't I don't think there was any you know special voodoo um, in I, that. I, I would I would say this that when I got the box score at the end of the night and I saw six of twenty two next to Brogdon's name, I was I was stunned just because I, I can't think of too many times when a, a player on a Tony Bennett team takes twenty shots. Period. Right. Uh, and, right. And truthfully, if you're taking those sorts of shots uh, and, and playing for him, and they're not good shots. You're finding yourself on the bench in a hurry no matter how good you are at the defensive end. So what that told me as I kind of went back and thought about the game was that there weren't that many shots that Brogdon was taking where you would say, you know, that wasn't a very good idea. There were probably one or two in there, and and heavens knows if if anybody has earned a heat check in the ACC this year, Malcolm Brogdon and and Grayson Allen basically comprise that list. So I, I uh, I, I think that, you know, that was probably an atypical shooting performance. You could argue, I don't know if Virginia wants to argue, uh, but I think you could argue that the fact that North Carolina kind of breezed through its semifinal and, and Virginia actually had to play into the final minute or two where that game was being contested against Miami might have played a role, especially playing three games in three days. Uh, but that's not a problem uh, that the Cavaliers are going to face again this season. That's right, and, th- and I made that point in my, my column uh, today. I- you know, you're not. You don't have to win three games in three nights to win a national championship. You just have to win, you know, three little mini tournaments over three weekends, and that that's obviously a completely different animal. And and kind of speaking of that that those three mini tournaments, 
Um, let's go ahead and <laughs> let's go ahead and handle the elephant in the room. So if you look at the complete seed seed list, uh, Virginia's third, Michigan State ends up fifth, and somehow manages to get in Virginia's bracket. Talk to me about the S curve and why it's not a thing, and why we're all confused about it. Because the NCAA likes to save money. I mean, this is their crown jewel of a of a tournament. It pays for so many other things that they can test. So of course. It's entirely necessary to make sure the teams are kept close to home, uh, probably, possibly, in, in, almost entirely in the name of student-athlete welfare, um, with the little scare quotes there. You can't see it, but there they are. Yeah, yeah I felt it. Um, it's something that's really been emphasized for the last four or five years, uh, trying to keep teams close to home. So instead, instead of thinking of teams as you know the the, five, the the fourth team or the last team on the one line getting paired with the fifth team or first team on the two line it's more like mini groups it's mini groups of four that can be allocated different places geographically and depending on whether it fits a couple other criteria such as avoiding conference rematches and stuff like that you generally don't want to put the top two teams in the same league in the same bracket that kind of thing so basically you get to the number two line, and Michigan State's the best team. What's the closest regional to send them to? You send them to Chicago, uh, Big Ten country, a uh, bit closer, I believe, geographically. I didn't actually crunch the numbers on this. Uh, so if you want to Google map it, go ahead. But closer to Chicago than Louisville. Uh, and that is how Michigan State ends up as the two seed in the Midwest. I think the thing that messed me up is was was when Can- when the when the brackets came out and Kansas was was the one seed. Uh, in the south, and if you do if you do Google Math or Google Map, I'm sorry, I'm getting this is totally me on my 11th interview of the day. Um, <laughs> but if you do the Google Map thing, uh, Lawrence is actually like three miles closer to Louisville than than Chicago. I'd have never guessed it. Well, that's what I was okay. So it makes sense to me that that Kansas would go to the team go to the place that's the closest you know but what didn't when there was a I mean I guess I just maybe Midwest just you just feel like Kansas better mm-hmm. than you do and so I was thinking all right if I'm the number one overall seed I guess be, I, and maybe if it's literally three miles maybe that's exactly what they what they did it for but it seems like to me <laughs> that the conspiracy it gives it gives the conspiracy theorists out there a little bit uh, too much to work with um, because it just does seem it, it would make more sense. It just seems more natural for Kansas to be the one in the Midwest for Virginia to be the number one in the South. Or if you give that, uh, if you give that to, to Carolina, you know, I could, I could see, you know, Virginia, Carolina being one season, the East South, which however you want to uh, break that up. But I understand where you're coming from. I, I guess my other question then is if they don't use the seeding, the complete seed list for, Seeding in terms of the way that the that the, the the numbers that come after the first four match up with those first four, there is no S curve. Then why do they have a complete seed list? What's the point of releasing that to the public, other uh, than just having it, it out there to be talked about? You know that might it very well might be something that they do just to uh, just to basically try to minimize the conspiracy theories and say, hey, look, transparency. When of course they've just spent five days sequestered in a hotel conference room with. You know, CBS occasionally coming in and taking a taking a, a quick shot of them, just kind of staring at their computers. Um, basically, that the way it kind of, it, the way it works is they just kind of pick them off geographically, going down one after another after another. And I, I think maybe some of the reason to release it is curiosity. 
but uh, what does it serve some larger purpose? I'm not really sure it does. Because it kind of does imply a larger purpose. At least it does to me. You know, if you can look at it and you say, okay, Michigan State was the five, which makes them essentially the first you know, team on the two line. It does seem like you would think in a tournament that they should be matched up with the, you know what I mean? Oh, you abso- uh, absolutely. I mean, listen, I, I think I think in general it's pretty ridiculous for uh, for for this event, which generates as much revenue for the NCAA as it does, uh, to not be bracketed in pure form if you can help it. Clearly, you wouldn't want to have a situation where let's say let's say your number eight team was uh was was Utah and your number 9 team uh was Oregon. I mean, you wouldn't want to have a scenario where the two best teams in in your conference were playing each other in the round of 16. Right, so right. that's certainly that's and that's a, you know, I think that's a bracketing principle that that's 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 very significant. I I, I know that the committee allows uh matchups as early as the round of 32 for conference opponents if they've only played once. I know that when I go through and try to construct my bracket, I try to keep it so that you still can't face each other until the Elite Eight. Sometimes right. it's not possible to have that happen. Right. Like if you just get a cluster of teams in the same conference on the 2, 3, and 6, and 7 lines, sometimes you can't avoid one of those. But uh, I, 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 do think that, I do think that it would be better if the, if the committee went back to simply trying to... to to seed it as equitably as possible, particularly right. Right. through about the first four or five lines. Right. Because uh, I, as I think you can wind up with regions that are really skewed one way or the other, and, and that's no good. You think back a couple years ago, uh, the and and there was a rule put in where the where the number the best number two I don't think can be paired with the best number one anymore, regardless of seeding. You think about the year Louisville and Duke were one two right. in the same region. Right. Uh, but which because, was just silly. I mean, so they you could argue that because year. I want to say that was right? 13. You could have argued that year that Duke was the second best team in the country. And, and there they are, stuck playing a regional final against Louisville. So, Because mm-hmm. that was my thought process. Is like, all right, well, if you know, if, if uh, let's, let's just say for argument's sake that they decided to put Kansas in the Midwest, right, mm-hmm. and put Virginia in the South, and then Michigan State being the number, the, you know, the number, essentially the number one two seed, right, the top team in the two seed line, by geography would have been matched up with Kansas, which obviously wouldn't be fair because that's no advantage for for Kansas to be the top number, you know, the top overall seed and then get the best two seed in its in its region. Um, so the geography thing to me, it's funny. We we freaked out. I feel like on football for years, you know, about how we determined the champion and we had to do this and we had to do that and then we had to get a playoff and oh my gosh, playoffs are the greatest thing ever. And I always thought, you know, what they should do? They should just have the BCS in terms of the computers and the way all that stuff worked out, and then just let the top four teams in the BCS play because then you get the best of both worlds. You know, mm-hmm. you still get the playoff where you get the thing decided on the field, but then you have, you know, a com- as, as much as you can make it, you know, a non, I guess a non-human um, impacted, you know, because we all have our, um, you know, we all bring our, our biases to the table. It seems like with this, and, and there seems to be some some talk about making changes to, or maybe asking for changes to how the uh, how the thing gets uh, gets seated, uh, how the teams get chosen, um, how that how the how the public sees that process, as opposed to just them, you know, like you said, coming out of their bunker and giving us a two hour show for no apparent reason. Um, do you see any kind of? reason to make changes to the way they're doing it do you see anything in this in this tournament that makes you scratch your head enough to think you know what we really got to change this process 
And the funny thing is, is aside from aside from the Michigan inclusion, which I just don't agree with, um, and the Oregon State seating, which I thought was puzzlingly high, I thought it was actually a reasonably consistent process this year. And the explanations, save one, I thought were pretty fair. And the exception to that, I thought, was uh, St. Bonaventure. It was really kind of a finely parsed explanation uh, for for why the Bonnies didn't get in. It's kind of ar- the argument during a, a teleconference with, with reporters. The committee chair said something along the lines of, well, they didn't have a top 150 non-conference strength of schedule. Well, St. Bonaventure was number 151. And they didn't beat a top 80 team outside of their conference. Well, they beat number 81 Ohio, which, you know, that was that was probably cutting it a little fine for my taste. Uh, and that was a team that had also gone on the road and won, had a winning record against the top 100, winning record against the top 50, winning record on the road. Uh, people talk about Monmouth as the team that did it, what everybody asks you to do. St. Bonaventure is the team that really did what everybody asks you to do, and they got shipped off to the NIT. So I, I think that Clearly, the the committee has made has made a, a, a course change that essentially rewards uh, teams that just get a few victories, can get the you know three or four reasonably high end victories, and, and that's an advantage to power conference teams because they get more opportunities. Uh, you know, St. Bonaventure was three and two against the top fifty. Michigan was four and eleven. Uh, and, and, and Michigan's a team that's getting in there. Now, granted, Michigan didn't have a loss to LaSalle on the road like St. Bonaventure did mm-hmm. either, so I think that's worth mentioning as well. But uh, clearly the, 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 ch- the course that's been charted uh, is one uh, that, that tends to favor power conferences, and I know there's a lot of people out there that probably don't like that, but I will at least give the committee credit in that they pretty consistently applied what they valued uh, in this process this season. So uh, if there's anything to change, it's to get rid of that ridiculous two-hour show, which was... <laughs> it was which, awful. Which, which, I mean... It was I awful. Don't, I don't need to see Charles Barkley filling out a bracket and struggling with technology. I mean, <sighs> I expected him just to say he thought the Warriors were going to win anyway. So, <laughs> you know, and, and, and you know, it's this time of year where the Turner NBA guys come in and look. You know, Charles Barkley's entertaining. I'm sure Kenny Smith's a great guy, all that stuff. But these guys aren't paying that much attention to college basketball throughout the season. They, right. Their job is to is to worry about the NBA. You know, I mean, I don't think anybody would want to talk to me about the NBA because I don't pay any attention to it. Uh, and, and I'm sure these guys pay more attention to college basketball than I pay to the NBA. But <laughs> at the same time, like, I, I don't really care what they think about right. these games. Like, just, just, you know, if you want to come on and talk about the game at halftime, fine. But right. Don't 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 set up the tournament for me because you're just fumbling around and telling me that you know teams in the Big Five in Philadelphia don't play each other every year when they still play each other every year. Right. It's, it's it's just like I mean I could sit here and pick this apart comment by comment. It just kind of illustrates, uh, you know, this is this is this is the whole you know why do we have to have college or the NBA the pro game forced on us at the college level in terms of consumers. So, well, I'll tell you, uh, you know, and this is I, not a CBS only thing. Either. No, that's, you're right. I'll tell you what, at least in this case, what it is, I believe is one, it is that Charles and Kenny and Ernie are TNT's bread and butter. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think CBS doesn't have quite the roster, or at least it doesn't believe that it has the roster that like ESPN has, because I don't think you would necessarily see any of the, you wouldn't see Jeff and Gundy coming on talking about, 
the college game. What you would get is if this, let's say, let's say ESPN owned the property, you would get Billis and you would get Jay Williams and you would get Seth Greenberg because they're they're game day, so they they need to be out there. I, why they don't bring Grant Hill um, into the thing, I'm not sure because I think he does a really good job on TV. Um, you know, there are lots of guys on the CBS bench that they could bring in to talk about it that wouldn't have to be Kenny and and Ernie um, and, and and Charles. But the problem is is that those guys have the best NBA studio show. And so mm-hmm. they feel like they need to, you know, to have them involved. And I think then they think they're planting the seed as these, as you watch these players get older, they just, I think they just grossly underestimate uh, the college basketball fan because the college basketball fan is a very different fan compared to the NBA. The way that a college football fan is a different fan from the NFL. Um, it, you know, college football is a very regional sport College basketball is to some degree, but the teams that you follow, the, the people when you watch March Madness, you don't all of a sudden become a fan of this guy and now become a fan of the Sacramento Kings because they drafted him, you know, 17th in the NBA draft that next year. That's just not the way it works. Um, and so it doesn't matter if Charles comes out and talks to you, especially if he comes out looking like a buffoon. And I mean, look, I, I'm a big Charles fan. I do watch the NBA. I like, I like both games, but I don't need. I don't need the NBA guy who who does not watch college hoops to be there so I can spend an extra hour more, you know, watching the show just to find out where the seeds are. And the fact that this thing leaked, I think is the most beautiful part of this whole deal is that here you were with the money grab and, and literally it leaked and like you got the worst ratings you ever got because not only was the information already out there but the show was atrocious. And I I think that's just poetic in in, in a lot of ways. Um, before before we run on forever, I want to focus on region by region. I, I'm I'm not going to give you my picks because I mean I got to give the people something to 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 check in for on the next podcast. But I do want to see what you think of each region um, in terms of how tough it is and and, and maybe the, the either the couple a couple games in there that you think are, are really good matchups either in the first or set couple, first couple rounds or or down the road and then give me who you think. Um, We'll come out. We'll we'll start with we'll start with we won't start with UVA. We'll we'll wrap up with the Midwest. Let's start in the East. It seems like to me, looking at this one, a lot of names um, that those of us who watch college basketball will know at least. A lot of brands in there. You got Carolina. You got Indiana. You got Kentucky. uh, You got Michigan if they can beat Tulsa. You got Notre Dame. um, You got Greg Gard's first chance with Wisconsin. Uh, Xavier is a team I think that nobody really has a good enough appreciation for how good they are. What, what do you think of the East region? Um, and, and where, how do you kind of see this one playing out? Really, really, really good. And, and, and I, I look at some of these round of 16 matchups, uh, and, and the power, I should say round of 32 matchups. And, and I'm really, really more excited about them than I am. Some of the first round games, obviously Kentucky, Indiana will get some attention. I wouldn't be stunned if Indiana loses to Chattanooga, in, in that first round game, you look at Carolina possibly playing Providence, Chris Dunn versus Marcus Page. Yeah, that's, that's that one sound, of my, one that of my sounds like a matchups. pretty good matchup. Yep. Uh, you look West Virginia's defense against Notre Dame's efficient offense. I think that's a really fascinating game. Xavier and Wisconsin, just an absolute bloodbath. I would expect that game to be. Uh, but even even further down the board, where you start looking at the bottom four teams in that in that field. Stony Brook with Jameel Warney, really happy for that guy. I mean, he has been one of the best mid-major players since he arrived at Stony Brook, finally gets to play in the NCAA tournament as a senior. Stephen F. Austin, the, the, the dominant force in the Southland Conference, 
didn't get the happiest draw having to go play West Virginia. But Stephen F. Austin isn't a team that turns it over that much. So maybe they'll be able to deal uh, with West Virginia and, and the challenges of, of the press there. Uh, Weaver State and Joel Balomboy, a really, really good interior mid-major player. So there's a lot to like in that bracket. And and, and there's I, I'm not sure you're going to see a ton of upsets early on. I, I, I don't see Pittsburgh knocking off Wisconsin. Don't really see... Uh, West Virginia losing their opener. Don't really see Kentucky losing. Certainly don't see North Carolina losing in North Carolina. Uh, but further down the road, a possible North Carolina-Kentucky game. Further down the road, North Carolina against Xavier or or maybe a Kentucky-West Virginia rematch from last year. Uh, a lot of things on the table there. Uh, but I think that that's probably, like you say, a, a pretty good brand name uh, bracket, and I think that it'll certainly uh, be a fun four-team grouping, whoever it is that, mm-hmm. that arrives in Philadelphia next weekend. Out in the West, Oregon gets the one seed. I'm, I'm interested to see them because I haven't seen much of them this year, um, mainly because, you know, Pac-12 might as well be a different planet sometimes. Um, but then you've got some interesting matchups down the road. You, you've got, obviously, Duke in this bracket uh, against UNCW, which I think more people in Carolina want to make that into a thing that probably is a thing. Uh, I'm interested to see what Texas A&M does. Oklahoma, of course, um, would be the team that most people would probably have expected uh, several weeks ago to get a number one seed. But the the topsy turvy way of the uh, of the top of the uh, of the rankings this year, just you know, if you were at the, if you were at the top of the wrong time, you were going to bound to fall down. How do you how do you see this one stacking up? It look, this one looks to me like the easiest of the group. But you tell me why I'm right or why I'm wrong. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I do think that there is some vulnerability for all of the teams in the top half of the draw. Uh, Oregon's really good. A team that I've seen, and this is this is where I can actually come in and say I've seen this team. I try not to even think about what I see when I'm projecting brackets and whatnot. So, so this is sort of the first day that I can actually say these guys look really good when I saw them. And St. Joseph's is a team that I like a lot. DeAndre Bembry. He's a pro, plain and simple. And Isaiah Miles has had a really good year as well for the Hawks. They're deep, they're athletic, uh, and I think that they could they could spring an upset on Oregon in the round of 32. You know, Baylor's a team that that has some decent victories, but hasn't been great over the over the last month or so of the season. They've gotten some, they've gotten their share of wins, but haven't been a, a particular force. You've got Duke, who I think has an interesting contrast with UNC Wilmington. Uh, the Wilmington's a team that is deep is athletic, they press you, they they defend like crazy, they 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 really do play a 40-minute game, to borrow the cliche a little bit. And it's not hard to imagine Duke kind of finally sorting things out and winning that game. They'll get to the foul line a ton against a Wilmington team that fouls a lot. Uh, but it's not hard to imagine Duke being worn out by the time uh, they roll into the round of 32 and maybe have a situation where Wilmington doesn't beat them on Thursday but does contribute to beating them on Saturday. Bottom half of the draw, I do really like Texas A&M. I think that's a good veteran team uh, that's had all the pieces kind of come together this year. Texas uh, has had a really fine season under Shaka Smart, but I I think they're going to be vulnerable to Northern Iowa in that opener. Remember, Northern Iowa with two wins over Wichita State also beat Iowa State and North Carolina. They have a stack of really weird, bizarre losses, uh, but I do think West Washpun and the Panthers are a dangerous team. And then you look down in Oklahoma City, 
Oregon State probably a bit overseeded. Uh, the Trey Tinkle uh, injury situation something that bears watching. Uh, but I think Oklahoma is probably my pick to emerge out of this bracket. I think that with Buddy Heald uh, in this year with so many great seniors uh, among on some of these good teams, I, I think he's one of the best that there is. And I, I think that he gets Lon Kruger uh, to a Final Four with a second different school. The the South has Kansas is the one. And the reason I said that the that the the um, the West was a little bit easier is because I look down this list and I think the team that the team that I I can't I, I've I've gone to pick this thing like three different times and I can stop myself. There's something about Cal that really I don't know, man. It just I, I think they that's a team ready for war. You've got probably the best pure rebounder. Uh, let me rephrase: the best elite pure rebounder. Since Rodman, I really, I really think that Yvonne Rob is that good. Um, I, I, I've never, I have yet to see a kid be able to rebound against Virginia the way that kid did. Now, I understand that was kind of right before conference play started, and that was kind of when UVA was kind of hitting that that lull defensively. But man, that dude is special. And then some of the other pieces they have around them, I, that's a team for me that is that I look at this bracket and I'm like, you know, if I'm Kansas, I'm a little worried about him. Um, and then I look down, I'm like, look, Miami is extremely talented, extremely experienced, um, plays a style that is going to be able to, to travel. Um, and then I'm not, I'm not really sure what I'm going to get out of Iowa or Villanova in that bracket. What do, you, what do you see coming out of the South? Well, I, I think Kansas at least survives the first weekend, even though UConn's kind of an interesting matchup there. Out in Spokane, you, know, you mentioned California. I, I have a hard time getting too much on the California train. It's funny that they're out there with Maryland – uh, those are two teams that have a couple pros for sure on them, two teams that had plenty of preseason buzz, two teams that probably didn't fulfill it, at least through the middle of the season. I, I think California did a better job of that toward the end of the year than Maryland did. California's a team that, that just hasn't done a whole lot away from Berkeley, and, and, and it makes me very reluctant to trust them uh, at, at this level. The real, you know, You look at... What have they done against high-level teams? What's their best victory away from home? Well, it was a Pac-12 quarterfinal against Oregon State when Oregon State had played the night before. What was their second-best win away from home? At Washington, an NIT team. So I'm a little skeptical of California. Uh, on the bottom half of the draw, I'm skeptical of pretty much everybody other than Miami that will be wearing a home <laughs> jersey in the first okay. round. Yeah, that's a, it's a, there. There are lots of unknowns. In that I think I think Arizona really didn't accomplish a whole lot, and I think Vanderbilt and Wichita State are both analytics favorites, and those kinds of teams have a way of have a way of showing up. And I, I kind of like I kind of like whoever comes out of that game to knock off Arizona. I have no faith whatsoever in Iowa to win another game this season. Uh, Villanova. I mean, even Jay Wright would acknowledge that people have kind of been like, "All right, get to the second round and and then go win that game, and then the season starts." Um, and I think that the possibility of them playing Temple, a team that's going to be plenty familiar with them, Fran Dunphy is going to know as much about Villanova on a short turnaround as just about anybody they could have found. You know, I, I like Miami coming out of that bottom half of the draw. Again, it's it's not that much different. Uh, from uh, from from the team of three three years or so three years or so ago, uh, a Miami team that was really veteran, played smart. They had they they didn't necessarily play all that smart during the ACC tournament. I was kind of surprised at, at some of the things that happened, uh, and I think Jim Laranega was surprised at th some of the things that happened. But I could very easily see a Kansas Miami regional final there. Kansas has just been the best team in the country. It hasn't lost. 
since the end end of January. Uh, it's really hard to pick against the Jayhawks, even with uh, their recent postseason uh, foibles. Right. All right, and then we'll we'll save the at least from the on this podcast at least the best for last. The Midwest region: Virginia, the one; Michigan State, the two. Uh, they they seem to be on a collision course to me. Um, I mean. I, I don't see many headaches um, other than Purdue's size, perhaps, um, or if Iowa State can get through. That's a that's an interesting contrast in styles. Um, as somebody who covers recruiting, that Seton Hall game, if if Seton Hall could get past, you know, could win a few games, that matchup would be interesting because there's a kid named Angel Gatto there who, mm-hmm. for the longest time, felt like he was a, a you know he was a heavy UVA lean. Ron Sanchez worked his tail off on that one, um, and he ended up. Uh, at Seton Hall, largely, I think, because of some some academic uh, differences between those two schools. Uh, this is obviously the bracket, the side of the bracket where Syracuse gets in. Um, I, I don't want to overlook Utah completely, but it just does feel like to me this is going to be Virginia, Michigan State, and for the Cavaliers to get to the Final Four, they got to, you know, got to exercise this demon. Uh, either either make the people really happy, Patrick, or or break their heart. How do you what do you what do you see coming out of the Midwest? Well, first l- let me let me take care of the middle segment of this. the the two team the two teams that won't be in Virginia or two games that won't be in Virginia's pod in their half. The two games that won't be in Michigan State's pod in their half. I, I think we could see some carnage there. Uh, I really like Arkansas Little Rock, a team that plays at a very deliberate pace. It's not quite Virginia deliberate, but it's deliberate, and it's a team that forces a ton of turnovers. It's going to be perfectly happy playing a rock fight with Purdue. Uh, And then you look at Iona, a team that's going to basically play a first to 100 wins game against Iowa State. I mean, that that to me, if you could say pick one game out that you get to see in the first round, it might just be Iowa State, Iona. And and both of those could be upsets. It wouldn't shock me if either Seton Hall or Gonzaga won that game. Gonzaga has won the first game in the tournament every year for the last seven years. Uh, Mark Few is pretty good. Uh, when it comes to at least getting that first game in March. So, you know, and I like Seton Hall, too. I thought that when I saw them come through uh, Georgetown in mid-February, that was a team I was so impressed at at just the resurrection job that was done since this time last year. I mean, that was a program in complete disarray. I'm not sure there's somebody that has has taken a, a, a really broken situation and turned it into something good in less time than Kevin Willard did in basically saving his job at Seton Hall. But I, I think that they're probably a, a, a threat to be a team that maybe maybe they, uh, maybe they fired their best bullets this past weekend. So I think you could see some carnage in the middle of that bracket, uh, but you know I agree. I think that's a Virginia-Michigan State showdown. Uh, and, and I tell you what, I was I was going through this earlier, uh, you know, just kind of going through the the history as Virginia fans very well know uh, from last year. Gosh, you don't you don't want to bank against Tom Izzo on on a forty eight hour turnaround. Michigan State all time in the NCAA tournament is twenty one and four under Izzo in the second game at a site, whether that's the round of thirty two a regional final or a national title game. And two of those losses were to North Carolina. One was to TJ Ford in Texas. And frankly, I'm kind of, oh, the other one was the East Regional a couple years ago when they lost to Connecticut. So uh, I, I look at uh, I, I look at, uh, at that game and, you know, Michigan State's just so tough. I mean, I expect that to be, uh, if, if, if just trying to project out and pick the game that I really hope comes to be, I know Virginia fans don't want to hear that, uh, but a Virginia-Michigan State game in a regional final would be just a blast. And and I, 
I, I, I lean towards Michigan State there, but I do think that that would be just a tremendous game. You know, it's funny. I, I was kind of just kind of grinning at halftime of the of the game the other night in D.C. Just that just the high level of play that both North Carolina and Virginia had, and it really you could take it out to about the 30, 32 minute mark, uh, and I think you'd see probably something pretty similar with both teams just operating at a really really high level, uh, especially at the defensive end. Yeah, the thing the thing I find interesting about this, you know, Michigan State being the bracket thing. I mean, the idea that you, okay, if it's the the round of sixteen or something, okay, you may, but you're talking about getting to the final four. You're going to have to play good teams, great teams, to get to the final four. I think it's actually really appropriate that these kids who these seniors who have lost to Michigan State twice in the tournament now would have a chance to to, to basically to to exercise that demon if they're going to in fact do something special. Um, so in a way, I think that's actually a good thing. Um, better than having to worry about you know playing them earlier or even later. Um, you know, it, like you said, I think the fact that it's the second, it, it would be the potential second game of the weekend gives you pause because Izzo is so good in in limited time. But then you know that these two teams, they've the the, the they've done scouts on each other. They they know exactly you know what what's coming i mean mm -hmm. you know i don't think i don't think i mean even the worst coach could you know could, could prepare for virginia uh in this situation pretty well considering that you just played them twice so i think in a way that i almost feel like that negates a little bit of izzo's advantage in the sense you know what i'm saying like how many other teams i mean they would have kind of been in the similar situation anyway the flip side is that virginia will have been you know will have also prepared that scout twice and now mm -hmm. a third time the difference to me in this game is Malcolm Brogdon's defense. I don't know I don't know if he was as good last year. I don't think that that the that the team um, needed him to be as good last year. But I think that's a very valid point. You know, he he was a he was a he was a really important piece in a bigger cog, you know, in a bigger wheel, right? So he was yeah, a, he was yeah a in, piece. in a lot of ways last year it was like you just be good and when Justin goes to the bench for eight eight to ten minutes, that's when we right. need you to be real. Not good. to mention that Justin was still coming in off of he had the appendectomy and then mm -hmm. uh, he had the broken finger and then the appendectomy. He was still at that point, that was the first weekend still. So I mean he was still what, ten days? Or so back at that point, yes. and so we even we didn't even get to see full you know full on Justin. The difference to me is you did get a full on Darion Atkins. Um, I wonder in terms of the mental way that these guys approach things, if getting this team to get to the Final Four isn't the best carrot that could, could hang in front of them. Um, the flip side of that is Daniel Valentine is really freaking good, and this team is very good. They don't make they maybe they they're not quite to me, and I, I kind of look at Michigan State similarly to to UVA in that sense. The, the last couple years, I think Virginia was at a was just a, a, a like a tick higher. Um, I think the same thing about Michigan State, which uh, I agree with you. This to me is the game of the tournament. Could probably this game between these two teams in this situation, if it, if that's what comes to pass could be better than even games in the Final Four or the championship game. Um, it just has that kind of potential, um, you know, in terms of the styles, in terms of the background, the storylines, it's all kinds of fun stuff. Not to mention you have two of the top five players in, in America um, who are going to be able to go right at each other in this game. I think that's going to be uh, a lot of fun if that's the way it comes to pass. Now, you know, Tony Bennett made a good point on the teleconference last night. Like, you know, if they started looking forward to that, you're in a world of trouble. Um, you know, Hampton isn't is is you know is not looking is not is not going to give you an opportunity to look past them. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you know you got like JC Zimmel mentioned to me. You got you got the uh, the return to uh, to PNC 
of um oh what's his name um little uh um lewis tyler lewis you have tyler oh, lewis yes. coming back to pnc um which would be an interesting little wrinkle uh, in that kind of matchup. I don't know. Purdue size, I, 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 like I said before, Iowa State's uh, system. There's some interesting little nuggets there, but I'm like you. I, I'm looking for the for for chalk to get to the Elite Eight game, and it would be a lot of fun, and certainly would be a game that I think it's funny. You mentioned that Cavalier fans might not want to hear it. I honestly think there's a good portion of folks who are nervous, and then I think a lot of them were like, "Hey, bring it." Like if we're gonna do this, let's do it right and let's let's get let's get past them. The the, the split on my board seemed to be about fifty fifty between people who were just petrified of it, um, and then people who were kind of embracing it and really excited because they you know they think that this is this this might be the year. I mean, law of averages says that, but then again, so does you know. You, you, also, Virginia you Tech also have football. to point this out too that if, if Virginia plays Michigan State, it means it's in the Elite Eight for the first time in more than twenty years. That's a good point. Yep. So. You know, if you're a Virginia fan and and somebody somebody comes up to you on November 13th and says you're playing Michigan State in the Elite Eight, do you take it? Yep. I mean, you probably do. Yeah. I mean, you probably take that as your season and say we'll go from here. Yep. Yep. That's a good point. Yeah. That's yeah. I, that's a good point. Um, Patrick, I think that's a great place to to put a pin in it. Um, I, I know that you have had a very busy day. Um, am I the am I the last, or do you have anybody else after? You me? are the last. So you finally get to to rest. Uh, for real now, um, now that you've done your 11th uh, spot of the day. Uh, as always, I, I greatly appreciate you you coming on the show and giving us uh, your time. Uh, I took about twice as much as I expected, which I think is kind of the way I normally do it, so I appreciate you uh, you being willing to come on the show uh, again this year, and I'm sure we'll, uh, we'll be talking to you down the road. Uh, Patrick Stevens, contributor for the Washington Post, as well as the News and Observer down in Raleigh. Follow him on Twitter at Discourse instead of an I. It's a one. I want to thank Patrick for being on the show. I want to thank everybody out there for giving us a listen. We will have another episode for you hot and fresh tomorrow. So for Patrick Stevens, I'm Brad Franklin, publisher of CavsCorner.com. Thanks for coming out, and we'll see you soon.